Welcome to Unfiltered. Buckle up, guys. There's a lot of news to get to tonight. I'm going to do my best to get to all of it. We've got some great guests standing by to help break it all down. There's that bombshell report in the New York Times that the, uh, the FBI was investigating whether the president was actually a Russian asset. We'll talk about the latest two Democrats who just announced they're going to run for president. I've got a member of the Congressional Black Caucus on later to discuss Republican Congressman Steve King's comments on white supremacy and much more. But first, tonight's headline. The shutdown has shut down the president. It's the 22nd day of the partial government shutdown, making it the longest in American history. Yesterday, thousands of federal workers received paychecks for zero dollars as a wave of anxiety washed over countless families who wonder how they will pay their bills. No problem for Trump, though. He says he's proud to shut the government down and will keep it shut down for years if he has to. Earlier this week, in what looked like a hostage video, he gave a stilted, scripted address from the Oval Office laying out his case for a deal with Democrats on border wall funding. They did not budge. Hindered but undeterred, he began floating the idea of declaring a national emergency to, to fund his border wall. But he faced a lukewarm response from Republicans who rightly worried about the precedent of using American taxpayer dollars and maybe even the military to, you know, get what Congress won't give you. Well, that didn't seem to work. OK, what next? Well, the White House reportedly started looking into whether or not Trump could fund his wall with $13.9 billion that had been allocated last year to hurricane victims. Boy, this guy is desperate, ain't he? Uh, okay, seemingly out of options, the president finally said, screw it, let's see if this works. When during the campaign, I would say Mexico's going to pay for it. Obviously, I never said this and I never meant they're gonna write out a check. Um, yep, you did. Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Mexico will pay for the wall. And Mexico is going to pay for the wall. And who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico! Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico! Okay, but don't count him out just yet. Trump's a real estate guy. He knows how to negotiate. What do you do when your $5 billion wall isn't selling? You lower the price, of course. According to Fox and Friends host Steve Ducey, Trump will now, quote, take anything in the twos. Got a big wall, lots of light, prime border location in the twos. That's a bargain, Democrats. OK, here's the deal. This is what losing looks like. Mr. President, you've lost this one. You're not getting your $5.7 billion border wall, not from Mexico, not from Congress. And I'm willing to wager not from taxpayers either. It's a shame, too, because when you had the opportunity, the public support, Republicans in control of Congress, Democrats against the proverbial wall, you couldn't get it done. Why? Too much tweeting, too much rallying, not enough governing. So now it's time to accept the loss and move on to what's next. I have some ideas. I happened by your tweet from earlier today. I just watched a fake reporter from the Amazon Washington Post say the White House is chaotic, there does not seem to be a strategy for this shutdown. There is no plan. The fakes always like talking chaos. There is none. In fact, there's almost nobody in the White House but me. You know, I've always found my alone time to be some of my most productive. Use this me time, Mr. President. Get back in touch with you. 
Try meditating, get centered. Yoga helps clear the mind. Or how about a vision board where you paste pictures of all the things you'd like to accomplish this year? I got you started. Here's a picture of a wall. And here's a picture of you signing a bill into a law. Put those up on your vision board. Think it. Whatever you do, the most important lesson is when you fall off a horse or fail to deliver on a key promise despite having total control of Washington, you get back on the horse. You don't declare a national emergency and make taxpayers pay for the horse. Good life lesson. Okay, let's discuss the latest on the shutdown and the border fight with Maryland Senator Ben Cardin. Uh, Senator Cardin, let me start with that idea that the president would take anything with a two in front of it for the wall. I don't know if that's true. Um, Fox and Friends host Steve Ducey said it was. I'll ask you, though, would you support two billion something in funding for a border wall? Well, first, let me say government needs to be opened. What the president is doing and shutting government is hurting people. It's hurting our country. He's holding America hostage. I met uh, yesterday with a large number of contract uh, government workers who are really hurting with not being able to get a check. It's affecting their family. It's affecting their credit. It's affecting their lives. This is serious business. Yeah. So government needs to be opened. So y your answer is how do you reach a, a compromise uh, with President Trump? It's difficult when he's holding America hostage. It's difficult when he undermines his own negotiators. But clearly, we believe in border security. So yes, we're willing to talk about border security. We know that we need additional resources spent on border security. The president's got to get away from the wall, but there is a way in which we could work out border security issues. But open government, don't hold the government, don't hold our country hostage. So five years ago, I know you know this, Democrats supported a bill that required the construction of 700 miles of border fencing. Every single Democrat voted for it, including you. So is it just now that the politics has, has shifted? Democrats hold more cards and can get more uh, for what they want. No, of course, as you point out, that was not fencing. It wasn't a wall from coast to coast. Yeah. It was part of an overall border security issue. Uh, it dealt with, we were dealing with other issues as well in regards to immigration reform. So there was a lot more involved in what we're trying to get done. And we're willing mm. to talk about that. We want comprehensive immigration reform. Absolutely. But you can't do it while government is shuttered. You can't do it when people's lives are being adversely affected by the president's arbitrary decision not to p sign bills that pass both the House and Senate. We're, we, we asked Mr. McConnell to do is pass bills that had already passed the Senate in order to open up government. And some agencies, most agencies are not even involved in this fight. It's ridiculous. So, uh, well, I think it's safe to say that the American people, as of now, hold the president responsible for this shutdown. Um, he asked them to. But I, I, I do think that they will tire of this game of chicken eventually. Do you think Democrats at some point will say, Enough. We'll come to the table. We'll fund a wall and get this government running again. Or do you do you not see that happening? I just think it's it's impossible to to negotiate with with a president is holding you hostage and changes his mind every few minutes, undermines his own negotiators. We want to get government open. We'll do anything reasonable to get government open. But clearly, the president's the one who's, who's stopping mm. it. And we could have opened it up already if Mitch McConnell would have allowed a vote on the floor of the Senate. We think we had the votes in the Senate not only to pass the bills we previously passed, but by margins that would be enough for a veto over.
override. So there's a way forward mm -hmm. that Congress, acting as a co-equal branch of government, doing its work, we can open up government, and yes, we will provide border security. Senator Ben Cardin, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, some perspective from the other side of the aisle, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Um, Congressman, before we get to the shutdown, I want to quickly start with Syria and Tulsi Gabbard's announcement on my colleague Van Jones's show. That full interview is coming up after my program, so everyone should tune in. Um, she announced she's running for president. I saw your tweet in response, and it was sitting high above his torture cells in Damascus. Assad is giddily crafting his wish list for the Tulsi campaign. I know what that means. Uh, I'm wondering if you might tell our audience what you meant by that. Well, you know, look, I, I respect that she's taking the leap to do it. Uh, it's courageous to run for president. But, you know, now you're in the arena and your past actions mean something. And, you know, Tulsi Gabbard went and visited with Bashar al-Assad, the guy that killed 500,000 people and suppresses his own people. You can agree that maybe we shouldn't intervene in Syria. You can agree that maybe Assad's the best of bad alternatives. I don't agree with any of that. Mm -hmm. But to go and meet with the guy is a pretty big deal. And so, you know, I think, look, once you step in the arena, it's yeah. fair game. And I think it's important for people to understand, as she announces, what her foreign policy is. And that includes sitting down with a guy like Assad. And some Democrats have already um, pointed that out. Claire McCaskill on, on Twitter uh, pointing that out. I actually asked someone at the Syrian American Council yesterday for a response and um, that body's board member, Bassam Rifai, said Ms. Gabbard is a vital puppet for the Assad regime and we shouldn't be fooled. I think we'll probably hear a lot more of that in coming days and weeks. Um, okay, I want to turn back to the shutdown. Would you support declaring a national emergency using taxpayer dollars and potentially even the military to get Trump's wall funded and up and running? No, not really. I'd want to see if he does it. I'd want to see the details of that. You know, if it's something massive, that's different than something like when President Obama declared swine flu a national emergency. It's kind of different levels. I do mm -hmm. want to get this wall built. Where I'm disgusted, Essie, yeah. is that we're at a shutdown right now as the only way to try to negotiate. We have quit acting like adults. And by the way, there's pox on both the Republicans and Democratic houses. We, we spend right. a lot of time saying who's more to blame, who's the, you know, and if you're on one side, it's always the other side. And we're in this battle. Everybody hates both of us, but we want them to hate the other side a little bit more. Mm. This shutdown insanity has got to stop. For the Democrats, you've got to come to the table and talk about wall. I'm sorry about it. You may not like it, but that's how, how divided mm. government works. For my side, we've got to be willing to come to the table and talk about things in addition to the wall, like DACA, like the Dreamer population. We can solve all this if we start acting like adults, but we're acting like kids with temper tantrums who want the other side to look worse every time. We can't give the other side a win. Well, and just what, what about the criticism of Congress, in addition to what you've said, but that for the last two years, Republicans controlled both chambers and maybe should have gotten border wall funding passed then. What responsibility did Republicans in Congress two years ago, what uh, responsibility do they bear for where we are right now? Well, a couple points. Certainly we wanted to do that, but there's the whole 60 vote rule in the Senate. That's just, yeah. that's the fact now. That was the fact then. Uh, we also had an opportunity this last summer. We had two bills that fully funded the wall and actually 
very positively fixed our immigration system. And my friends over in the Freedom Club on our side backed mm -hmm. away even after the president supported one of those. And, uh, and so we weren't able to get it out. The Democrats, none of them joined us in that. Right. So everybody's to blame here. And I, I look at this whole thing and you know, my issue isn't so much this fight on the wall. In 20 years, we're all going to forget about this fight. History books will never even write about it. What it's doing to the democracy, though, this mm. new thing of we're one week into a new term and we're already talking about the next election. We're already trying to make the other side lose more. And yeah. uh, this cycle has got to end and all of us bear responsibility, politicians and people who vote. Congressman Kinzinger, as always, I appreciate you coming on, talking some sense to me. You bet. Okay, Thanks. next, how do we end the shutdown when the politics of the shutdown keep derailing talks? Coming up after Congressman Steve King's latest round of racist remarks, I want to know if his Republican colleagues will finally step up and do what's right. Well, while Congress and the president play chicken with the government, the American people have weighed in. A recent poll by Ipsos on behalf of NPR shows that an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that Congress should pass a bill to reopen the government while budget talks continue. While a full three out of four Americans believe that the government shutdown is embarrassing for the country. So could public opinion nudge all parties in the right direction? Well, let's talk to CNN political commentators, Democratic strategist Maria Cardona and Republican strategist Kevin Madden. Uh, Kevin, from where I sit, the president has lost this fight. He lost it last year. He's now mm -hmm. just continuing to lose. Uh, mm -hmm. What should he do? Well, I mean, he should do his job uh, and start bringing people together. But right, that's the one of the most important yeah. roles of the presidency is the, the the unifying the ability to unify not only the country, um, but all of the different mm -hmm. warring parties inside Washington yeah. D.C. It's just not going to happen because both sides think that they have the incentive right now to continue to dig in and um, play the politics, continue to play the politics to what to their advantage, at yeah. least seemingly. But you look at numbers like that, right? right. Like in the 70s, like mm -hmm. that's what we call the exasperation level. Mm -hmm. Like the American people right. are exasperated. Yeah. <clears throat> Pretty soon there won't be any real political benefit because what ha what happens is the American people are going to turn on the institution of Washington. Right, everybody. And then they're <laughs> all in trouble. Right, so Maria, as Kevin mentioned, mm -hmm. Democrats have had very little incentive to budge, right? Mm -hmm. They just got control, they feel like they have a mandate, Mm -hmm. um, but to Kevin's point, yeah. will those numbers start to change things on the Dem side? Well, it's interesting because the numbers you, should, you just showed in terms of the American people think that government should be open while budget talks continue, stuff for the wall. Yeah. That's actually how government is supposed mm -hmm. to work, right. right? What President Trump is demanding in terms of a wall and immigration and all of that, yes, we can have that discussion. And we have been having that discussion mm -hmm. for quite some time. But a, to, to, to have it on the backs of 800,000 federal workers is not the place to do it. No, no, no. So to I your agree. point. They are but, agreeing. But, but no, they exactly. get to the point where they say, who cares whose fault it is? Just someone's got well, to go. Right. But so here's the thing. Democrats have gone. They have passed several funding bills. Many of which, in fact, the, the first several yeah. batches of them were Republican funding bills that they were assured Senate Republicans. No, no, I get it, but if I'm just sitting at home, would, you're making would, a fine point. Right. That is true. But if I'm sitting at home about to collect a zero dollar sure. paycheck, I'm saying, who cares? No, no, I agree with the you. The Democrats have and already gone. Have, and you have yeah. workers who have been on the record saying, look. A border wall is not going to pay my mortgage. Democrats agree. So Democrats are ready to negotiate on 
Trump's border wall, but they don't want to do it. They don't it. want to go first. They, no, no, they you don't, don't want to do serious. it in this bill to reopen the government. Right. The, other, the, other, yeah, yeah. the other ingredient here yeah. is that everybody just came through an election, right? Yeah. So, and the Democrats are saying, <laughs> we, are, we were sent here to do exactly this. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, for ourselves right. as a bulwark against this president. And then all of the other, in, and the president and the Republicans, they're like, hey, we just, mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty far away from our next election. We're going to wait this out. Right. Yeah. And so, also, we were elected to do this. Right. So right. Those, numbers, but now right. those numbers are, we would think that, you would think everybody would start to move when you see numbers in the 70s, yeah. right? But it's going to take a little bit longer time than usual. Who's going to um, move first, do you think? I, I, you know, I think this ends up with the president declaring an emergency. We just talked you about do. this. I don't think that there's any out of there, 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 there is no legislative. I do not see a legislative off-ramp here. Right. I see Mitch this McConnell as, said the same thing. Yeah. Paul Ryan said the same thing, apparently, yeah. according right. to reports to the president. We do not see... A win. In order That's to get right. a legislative agreement, you have to have some sort of clarity about what you're agreeing to. Right. Every single time there has been an agreement, right. the president has sort of changed or moved the, the goalposts. So this Which is, is going to end up. Which is another problem in terms of how yeah. you negotiate with yeah. somebody like this that. This is going to end up with the president declaring an emergency, yeah. some sort of stop gap, right. stop gap moving, and no matter what, the president's going to He's declare, declare victory. He's going to declare victory because that's what he wants. <laughs> uh, okay, you two And it all goes to the courts. So we'll be back fighting for it another three months. <laughs> that's right. Oh, super. Um, you guys stay right there. After the break, I want to ask you about a radical theory I have that neither side truly wants to solve illegal immigration. And later in the show, how do we flush racism out of society if we can't even flush it out of Congress? Hot on the heels of Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard announcing her intention to run for president. Julian Castro makes his 2020 bid official. The former San Antonio mayor and HUD secretary under Obama made the announcement earlier today, framing his personal story as a direct repudiation of President Trump. It's great narrative, but is it enough to fend off a higher profile candidate like Biden, Bernie, Warren, not to mention Trump? Speaking of Senator Warren, her not a campaign yet swung by the key primary state of New Hampshire today, where she stumped with her dog. Okay, get comfortable, folks. It's going to be a very long campaign season, and I am here for it. We'll be back in two minutes. In the Red File tonight, it may seem like the government shut down and fighting in Washington is over a wall, but as is almost always the case when it comes to immigration, what we're fighting about is a distraction. Remember just last year we were fighting over birthright citizenship and the 14th Amendment? A few years ago, we were fighting over DACA. Before that, it was E-Verify, and before that, it was a pathway to citizenship. Both sides offer concessions, neither side accepts, pick your president, pounds his fists, and demands a solution. Meanwhile, our immigration system just always remains broken. I don't think that's by default. I think it's by design. Call me cynical, but I think there's a reason the system remains broken. And that's because both sides find that politically profitable. Republicans can run on the browning of America, Democrats' amnesty and scaring old white guys to the polls. And Democrats can fundraise on sanctuary cities and Republican xenophobia. Does anyone think Trump would be president today if illegal immigration had been solved? The problem has been punted by presidents and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle for decades. So is this latest fight yet again just for show? Back again, Kevin Madden, Maria Cardona. Kevin, most Americans want stronger borders, but um, not a physical wall. Mm-hmm. Trump's promise to overturn the 14th Amendment was never legally going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, two-thirds of immigrants do not prioritize 
a pathway to citizenship. They want legal status. So all the stuff we fight about are not the things that actually matter. Um, do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, but, but politics is, this is not new. Politics has always been about very vocal minorities. And I will tell you, like, having gone to different corners of Republican, you know, town halls all across the country, you know, people will politely clap about the uh, limited government. They'll politely clap mm -hmm. about lower taxes. But you bring up the issue of immigration, and yeah. it really does animate those, many no, of no, those no, poor I, of voters. No, of course it does. Right? Right? It yeah. feels like a fake fight. Because we're, we keep fighting about and, things yeah. that aren't actually going to change. And we have our these we have system. these temporary steps towards the towards fixing the broken. Yeah. System. Right. Let's you know taking the walk down memory lane again. Yes. You remember after 2012 election when the Republican mm -hmm. Party got together, did an audit, and said yes. one of the things we have to do is modernize our approach on how we talk about mm -hmm. immigration, yes. both on the legislative side and also how we reach out to to minorities. And then Trump descended down a staircase and called Mexico because rapists. because a vocal <laughs> minority in 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 many of these yeah. early primary states really did you know, get energized about his candidacy because of that. Well, Maria, I also think there are there are these crazy non-starter ideas that the far left and the far right mm -hmm. throw out. Abolishing ICE from mm -hmm. the left, for example. Mm -hmm. On the right, child separation policy, yeah. to name just one. Sure. Um, those things, I think, throw a wrench into a conversation, a meaningful conversation about immigration, too. And I think the obligation for leaders on both sides of, yeah. of the aisle and in both parties is to not let it. Mm. Because I agree with you. I don't think abolish ICE is a winning um, yeah. is a winning policy yeah. because, frankly, ICE is not the problem. Right. ICE it, it gets their their um, marching orders from the top, right? No, and so that's birthright citizenship. That's absolutely. what I'm saying. That, that's exactly right. So I think yeah. it's incumbent on leaders on both sides to put forth we're in trouble. sensible solutions. And to Kevin's point, we were at a point right after the election yep. in 2012, in 2013, we yep. were on the verge of having comprehensive immigration yeah, reform. Yeah, right. 2008 as well. And, yes, and, and that's in true. 2008. Yeah. But 2013, I think we got closer. It passed the Senate, and then John Boehner told Obama that he wasn't going to bring it to the floor because he didn't want something passed with majority oh, Democratic something always, something always there comes up. And in 2008, there. That's exactly 2008 right. it was, you know, all you had to do was find one thing in the bill that people yeah. didn't like. And, and, and it, was it was easy, easy to this find. Is, this That's is exactly my point. Right. That's right. I think if people really wanted to solve it, there have been plenty opportunities too. Yeah. And the fact that this is a pattern of going out of your way to not solve it yeah. really makes me think this is... This is on purpose. I mean, take politics out of it. If mm -hmm. you're just a, a person at home, you think, I know how to do this. Um, make legal immigration easier right. and illegal immigration harder. Right. Go. Right. And I think that that could be the possibility if you have, again, if you bring together sensible people. And I actually think Democrats should get together with the sensible Republicans that are still on the Hill if they want to to mm -hmm. find a space for this because I do think there is in the 20 in the Congress that we just had in mm -hmm. 2017 mm -hmm. 18 there was a bill that bill uh, congressman bill heard and Pete Aguilar yeah. had in Congress yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember. that was very reasonable huge investments on border security right. including additional wall funding yep. or fencing whatever you want to call it there is the possibility there it we just like need to try to get forward. the other thing is piece by piece. I think that's one of the bigger problems, too, is anytime you have a big bill, comprehensive, comprehensive right. it becomes problematic. Which yeah. is why yeah. you can't do this on a bill to fund the government and to reopen And we're full it. circle. Right. Okay. <laughs> Kevin, Maria, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Up next, I'll ask a member of the Congressional Black Caucus what he and his colleagues plan to do about Congressman Steve King's latest round of racist comments. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi late yesterday left open the possibility that Congressman Steve King of Iowa 
could face something as a consequence for remarks he made this week defending white supremacy. You heard that right. In an interview published Thursday, the nine-term Iowa Republican said, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? He has since sought to clumsily walk back those remarks, saying that they were taken out of context and that he rejects the, quote, evil ideology of white supremacy. He's merely a nationalist. Well, that's much better. Of the GOP lawmakers who have begun to distance themselves in statements and tweets from a congressman who has been doing this sort of thing for years, the strongest condemnation has come from the Senate's only black Republican, Tim Scott of South Carolina, who in a Washington Post op-ed said, some in our party wonder why Republicans are constantly accused of racism. It is because of our silence when things like this are said. Well, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he did weigh in. He said in part everything about white supremacy and white nationalism goes against who we are as a nation. Steve's language is reckless, wrong, and has no place in our society. Okay, so what about in Congress? Democratic Congressman Mark Vesey of Texas joins me now. He's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman, thanks for joining me. Um, first, I just want to get your personal reaction to what Steve King said. Oh, I wasn't surprised at all. He's been saying things like this since I've been in Congress, and I'm sure before uh, I came to Congress in 2013. Uh, Steve King is a white supremacist. He's a white nationalist. Uh, he's a racist. He's a provocateur of uh, anything controversial uh, that deals with race. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm uh, you know, um, uh, upset that the Republicans have taken so long to condemn him. It, it took him coming out and being you know, so blunt Yelling. and saying what's wrong right. with white, 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 white nationalism before they finally yeah. said anything. If you go back and you look at the things that he said about dreamers, the things that he said about President Obama, uh, this is a this is a bad guy. This is a racist, plain and simple. Well, let me add some more um, some 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 more uh, I guess descriptors. Um, he's homophobic. He's anti-Semitic, and yet he's been democratically elected nine times in Iowa. What do you think that says about bigotry in some parts of America? Oh, not only has he been reelected. Uh, the Republican uh, National Committee, the NRCC, uh, they've all poured money uh, into Steve King's race to make sure that uh, he was reelected, even after he said those things about dreamers, uh, after he mm -hmm. made anti-Semitic comments, when he, when he mm -hmm. said all of these things, uh, and he's been in trouble in his elections, the Republicans have still come to his rescue, uh, and yeah. many Republicans have actually sought his endorsement uh, when running for uh, national office in Iowa. Uh, and again, they yeah. need to step up all the time, not just when he's this blatant. That's wrong. That's what's wrong with the Republican Party. And that's why yeah. we have so much racism in this country still today is because people want to pretend like uh, the only uh, thing that's racist is when people actually uh, say uh, nasty uh, racist words or when they're as blatant as Steve King. But we know that racism is much more uh, systematic, uh, much more built into the system uh, than that and, and, and much more of a problem than just the blatant things that we occasionally hear. So I know that the CBC has released a statement um, asking for him to be removed from committees. Uh, I have called on Republicans as well to not just condemn his language, that should be you know baseline, but to tell him to step down, tell him to resign. Um, he might not do that, but at least 
we'd get uh, people on record telling him he, he indeed does not belong in Congress. What do you expect to happen, though, to Steve King? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to, to be Steve King's future uh, and uh, don't really care. I don't think that Steve King needs to be in Congress. I think that Republicans should ask him to resign. Uh, yeah. But I think that in the meantime, uh, I think that the talk that uh, he could possibly be censored, I would be very supportive of that. Uh, Steve King should have been censored a long time ago. Yeah. When the Republicans had the gavel, they should have censored him uh, because this is not new for this man. This is a terrible person. This is a terrible human being. He is a white supremacist racist, period. Thank you, Congressman VC. I really appreciate you coming on. Good to see you, Steve. For more on this, uh, I want to turn now to Tim Wise. He's an anti-racism educator and author of White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. Um, I want to have a kind of a different conversation with you, Tim. Steve King asked a question. I wanted to have you on in particular to answer it. So the question was, white nationalists, white supremacists, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? answer him. Well, it's offensive because it goes against at least the stated principles of the United States, even though as a country we never lived up to them. Uh, Historically, we certainly had a rhetoric that said we were more than just a white republic. So that's number one. They certainly ought to be known as offensive, at least since the civil rights movement, which if you're going to continue to endorse white supremacy or white nationalism, or if you're going to believe that Western civilization is essentially a biological thing that can only be furthered by people who are quote-unquote white, then by definition, you're rejecting the legacy of the civil rights movement. So you'd think that this was basic stuff that even a seven- or eight-year-old would know, uh, but apparently there are an awful lot of folks in our country who haven't gotten the memo yet. Well, and you you talk to people who used to be white supremacists in your work. When they hear the word nationalist, do they make a distinction between that and white supremacist? No, look, obviously the term nationalism has existed outside the context of race before. But the difference is when you have someone like Steve King or, for that matter, President Trump, who say, well, they're not white nationalists, they're American nationalists. The problem is if you're saying American nationalist to people who already assume American equals white, then those things are seen as synonymous. And so Mm -hmm. if you have a president who says, for instance, we want to make America great again, well, we know historically it wasn't really all that great for people of color. So who is he speaking? Speaking of, he's mm-hmm. talking about America as a racial thing, as a white place. And unfortunately, what a lot of white folks in this country have forgotten is something James Baldwin told us years ago when he was still alive, that America was never truly a white country. It's just that white folks had the luxury of believing that that was the case. So I think when neo-Nazis hear that, when white supremacists hear that, they're making the connections, even if Trump or King or others are sort of winking and nodding and not always being up front. I mean, winking and nodding, I think, is of the past. You know, the president said outright, call me a nationalist. King said, you know, I'm just a nationalist. Is that, you think, an attempt to normalize those words? And is it working? Well, it's certainly an attempt to normalize the words when Steve King does it, when David Duke does it, when people like that. I think Donald Trump has always been first and foremost about Donald Trump. I think he does it because he knows it pays dividends with the base that he desperately needs in order to stay in power. So I'm not sure, you know, how deeply felt Mm -hmm. anything is with Donald Trump. But I will say that when people use that kind of language, it certainly becomes more normalized. When I started doing this work, it was in 90 and 91 against David Duke when he ran for Senate and governor in Louisiana. He was at that time 
time using dog whistles, talking about welfare, yeah. immigration, affirmative action. Now we've moved from the dog whistle to the bullhorn. We have normalized yeah. a racist rhetoric far more dangerous 30 years later. So before we go, do you think that this sort of normalization, this nostalgia for a, a white America, does that die out with a generation or is it already permeating younger generations? Well, it only dies out if we do the work. Obviously, I don't believe that things change just because the clock hands turn or the calendar pages turn. But I do want to say this. I think young people, having grown up in a multi-culture in a way that older white folks, for example, in this country did not, are more likely to accept that multi-culture, although there are those folks like the ones in Charlottesville who clearly did not. So we have a lot of work right. to do. There's reason to be hopeful, but we still have to do the work to ensure that this poison isn't passed on to another generation. Hmm. Tim, um, some really good advice. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Essie. Okay, next I'll ask an expert whether it's finally time to rein in the imperial presidency or if it's too late. A bombshell report in the New York Times last night revealed that in 2017, FBI counterintelligence agents began investigating whether President Donald Trump was actually working on behalf of Russia against American interests. It's almost too crazy to imagine. And yet, here to discuss is Princeton professor of history and public affairs, CNN political analyst Julian Zelzer, co-author of the new book, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Uh, Julian, we don't know what the report has found, but how astounding is this? It's unbelievable. If you had told me this about another president another time, you'd say, come on, uh, you're making this up. And, and this is a pretty big claim to come on the front page of a major newspaper, and it will fuel uh, the energy and questions that are surrounding the Mueller report. I mean, the FBI was at least alarmed enough yeah. by Trump's really aberrant, um, unprecedented behavior when it came to Russia to pursue this, just imagining sort of the levels they'd have to go through to even pursue this, right? Knowing they were going to get backlash, that it was going to be politicized. They really must have thought they had something there. And this is what we know from his public appearances and public statements. They know more. Sure. And so the question is, what do they have privately that triggered these kinds of concerns? But this constitutes a big deal uh, for the FBI to do this. So you have a new column in the New York Times uh, entitled, Have We Had Enough of the Imperial Presidency Yet? Co-authored with Kevin Cruz, co-author of your book, in which you write, with Democrats now in control of the House of Representatives and the Mueller investigation seemingly coming to a conclusion as well, Mr. Trump will likely be held to account in one form or another. But it's important to remember that the imperial presidency will outlive any one president unless more is done to institute real checks and balances on the office itself. What do you mean by that? Well, I think he's exposed how powerful the president remains over four decades after Nixon stepped down. If a president wants to break norms and wants to go against institutions, there's not as much that we thought uh, to hold him back. Hmm. And if his own party controls Congress as they did and will sit quietly while a president exercises that muscle, they can exercise the muscle. So I think he's raised some pretty big questions not just about himself, mm. but about the presidency. The office. So, of course, presidents from both sides of the aisle um, have overused yep. executive uh, authority to sidestep Congress, not making any comparisons, not doing what aboutism, but just what do you say to the argument that Obama's 
use of executive authority might have made Trump's a little easier? Sure. Uh, I think Trump builds on what many presidents have, have done. done uh, really, since Nixon, yeah. we tried to reform the presidency and rein it in. But presidents in both parties have gradually strengthened the institution. And parties often sit quiet uh, when it's their own president. And so this is what happens when a president can use executive authority yeah. to do all sorts of things. People keep saying that Nixon, um, you know, had a lot of support in, in, in Republicans until he didn't. Mm -hmm. Right. That's and it true. sort of very quickly collapsed. Do you see that happening here with this president? It could. Partisanship is a lot stronger in 2019 than it was in 74. Oh, you, think you find that? It is. And it's not mm -hmm. simply do they support him, but the force is working to propel uh, partisanship from the conservative media to the way campaign mm -hmm. finance works. Nixon didn't have all of that. Yeah. But still, don't assume it can't break. Nixon didn't assume Republicans would abandon him. And they did. Right. And these scandals have a life of their own and they can change the way a party looks at what's in its best interest. You argue also that, you know, while Nixon was bad when it comes to this kind of authority, Trump's worse because he doesn't really care if he sort of burns it all down. Yeah, I think that's true. I think even Richard Nixon, who was a pretty abusive president, had a respect for the institutions of government yeah. that President Trump really doesn't have. And I think that's what we watch every day. He's willing to go to places uh, that Nixon and others were not willing to go. And I think that can be a little frightening to watch from the outside. Uh, it is. I wonder if Republicans are frightened enough about that or if it's not more short-term short -term gain for them. I think they're still thinking short-term game. They're thinking partisanship uh, means that they should support the president. And the question is, when does partisanship turn against him? Yeah. When are they so frightened, to what end? either yeah. politically or on principle, that they say enough? Julian, thanks so much. Great Thank piece. Uh, great book. Everyone look out for it. That's it for us tonight. Stick around for the Van Jones Show with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who is throwing her hat into the 2020 ring. That's a must-watch. He's also talking to Republicans who were ousted in the midterms about the future of their party. That's all next on CNN.